The United Kingdom is one of the largest economies in the world today and was arguably the single country with the largest influence in bringing the world into the modern age as the forerunner of the Industrial Revolution. That makes the economic problems we are about to explore all the harder to hear, because the declining dominance of the UK economy, as well as the social, political and financial problems that are coming with it, doesn't need to happen. When an economy is going well, it's easy to keep it going well. Its currency will be strong, people will want to invest in it, it can borrow at low rates, and it should foster political stability which means economic plans can be made over decades and generations rather than rapid election cycles. When an economy is stagnating, or worse still shrinking, then its currency becomes less desirable, borrowing money becomes harder, people will avoid investing in it, and policy decisions will be made by whoever can make the biggest promises to voters who want a way out of the economic mess. It's easy to see what kind of situation the UK is in today. The country is not nearly as globally influential as it once was, and its economy is becoming increasingly concentrated in a few industries that don't do a lot of good for the average Brit. The economy that led the way in the Industrial Revolution and kicked off the biggest economic boom in human history is today struggling with very real problems like poverty and drastic regional inequality. The biggest problem above all though is that it might not matter. The actual economic situation of the UK is, if anything, underreported, and that's because the country is quickly becoming a two-speed economy, with extreme wealth concentrated in London and economic decline everywhere else. The two halves average out, but really the standard of living of most participants in the UK is going backwards. If policymakers feel no pressure to reverse this trend, then it will likely continue, which will be great for everybody lucky enough to be employed in the global industries of London, all at the expense of everyone else in the country. It is, if nothing else, a really interesting case study into what defines economic success in the modern day. So why despite centuries of dominance is the UK falling behind all of a sudden? Has the growth of London come at the expense of the rest of the country? And finally, is it going to be possible to reverse these problems now that they've taken hold? These days, every new potential hire can feel like a high stakes wager for your small business. You want to be 100% certain that you have access to the best qualified candidates available, and that's why you have to check out LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn Jobs helps you find the right people for your team faster and for free. At Economics Explained, we used to pay a lot of money to find a decent candidate, but since using LinkedIn, we've been able to fill our roster with A players without missing a beat. It's just so easy to create a job post that we've been able to get specific and hire some really specialised roles like thumbnail designer, rather than having to pat out a role to make it worth the time and frustration of hiring. And then you can add the purple hashtag hiring frame to your LinkedIn profile to get extra referrals from your network. Simple tools like screening questions make it easy to focus on candidates with just the right skills and experience so you can quickly prioritise who you'd like to interview and hire. Hiring the right people has allowed us to put out more content at a much higher quality than before without having to shell out constantly for headhunters or recruiters. That's part of the reason why small businesses rate LinkedIn Jobs number one in developing quality hires versus leading competitors. LinkedIn Jobs helps you find qualified candidates you want to talk to faster. Post your job for free at linkedin.com ee. That's linkedin.com ee to post your job for free. Terms and conditions apply. This month alone we've explored the economies of Italy and Greece, two other European economies that have been stagnant since the mid-2000s, and it's important to make a big disclaimer here that the UK is not in as bad a situation as these countries were. Not yet at least. But the challenges that the UK is facing are both different, and while potentially less severe, they're going to be harder to deal with. The biggest issue is simply a crisis of confidence. There is a reason that we always include something as potentially ambiguous as confidence in the exploration that we do of all national economies and even include it in our leaderboard. And that's because it's one of the most important things that any economy can build up and once it's lost it can do some very tangible damage. The economy of the UK has obviously had a long slow decline from its peak as a world dominating colonial power, 
but its economic problems as they exist today arguably started on the 16th of September in 1992, now affectionately known as Black Wednesday. Before this, the UK still had its problems, but it was still seen as one of the most stable and reliable economies in the world to handle trade, finance and investment. The pound was still the world's second most used global currency, and it had the reputation for being, well, as sound as the pound. Old people might remember this saying, but it doesn't make much sense today. Two years before this fateful day, the UK entered into an agreement known as the Exchange Rate Mechanism, or ERM. This was almost an early precursor to the Euro. What this agreement did was link the major currencies in Europe together with a pre-agreed exchange rate range. If a country's exchange rate between another member country got too high or too low, the central banks of those two countries would need to intervene to get it back within the agreed upon range. This was a very expensive process and it meant that the central banks of all of the countries involved needed to keep a lot of reserves of all of the other countries involved to make sure they could buy or sell whatever currencies they needed to keep their own currency within an agreed upon price range. Now this whole thing, at least in theory, was not as stupid as it sounded. By controlling the varying exchange rates between the countries, it would make it a lot easier for businesses to trade and invest across borders without taking on exchange rate risk. If a French company invested in an Italian business and then it doubled in value, that would be great. But if the Italian lira halved in value in that time, then the French firm would be right back to where it started. The exchange rate mechanism made it so that this was theoretically not possible, which did provide a big boost to cross-border interactions between the major economies in Europe. The UK actually did not initially sign up to this scheme when it was first introduced by the European Economic Community, the forerunner to the European Union in 1979. It took 11 years for the UK to join the agreement after political tensions within the country tossed up the benefits and risks of indirectly pegging their far more dominant global currency to the rest of Europe. 1990 was unfortunately not the ideal time to jump on board the ERM because it coincided with the collapse of the Soviet Union and the reunification of East and West Germany, which might seem completely unrelated, but let's explain. The East, which was a satellite state of the USSR, was far less economically developed than the West, and the new unified Germany had to find a way to lift millions of people out of absolute poverty, modernise massively outdated industries, and build out connective infrastructure all without destroying the existing economy in the West, which by comparison was doing really well. Now the reason this was important to the UK is because Germany decided the best way to do this would be to increase their interest rates so that foreign investors would be tempted to put money into Germany where they could make a good return, and then Germany could take some of this money and use it to make the investments it needed to get the East up to speed. This was an unconventional approach because normally when a government wants to stimulate the economy like this, they would lower interest rates instead of raising them so that businesses and individuals could borrow more money to promote economic activity through spending and business operations. The reason Germany didn't do this though was because they were afraid of the potential for inflation if the economic shock of absorbing the East hurt production. Germany in the period between the First and Second World War suffered through terrible hyperinflation which spread poverty throughout the country, and even 60 years later that memory had not been lost. The high interest rates in Germany did exactly what they were designed to do. They attracted investors from all over the world that wanted to keep their money as Deutschmarks because they could earn a much higher interest rate on it. This included investors from the UK who had a comparatively much lower interest rate, and since the values of these currencies were tied together with the ERM, there was theoretically no risk in having money saved in Germany. The result was that the value of the British pound wanted to go down and the Deutschmark wanted to go up. But the British central bank was not allowed to let that happen because of the rules of the ERM. The UK ended up having to sell huge reserves of foreign currencies to try and keep the value of the pound artificially high and they were also forced to start raising interest rates at a time when the UK economy itself wasn't doing that well and probably would have benefited from lowering interest rates. 
To make matters worse, lots of investors had the suspicion that even an institution as powerful as the Bank of England couldn't hold back these market forces forever, and that eventually the value of these currencies would shoot back to where they wanted to be according to the laws of supply and demand. This meant that they changed even more of their money into German Deutschmarks because if they were right, not only would they earn a higher interest rate while they waited, they would also profit if the ERM failed and the value of currencies was allowed to equalise at the levels where they should be. Of course this did eventually fail, but not before increasingly desperate attempts by the Bank of England to maintain their commitment to keeping the foreign exchange rate steady. On the day of the collapse the bank raised interest rates from 10% to 15% before admitting defeat and lowering them back down to 12%. Again, all within a day. The UK was hurt by this in the short term, as was the rest of Europe, but it did something far more damaging than that in the long term for the country. It started to raise doubts over just how well managed the United Kingdom really was. In the years since, the country was one of the worst hit economies by the GFC and was then collateral damage from the Eurozone crisis, it went through a very uncertain breakup with the EU, and it's now probably best known for its revolving door of Prime Ministers. Although as an Australian I really can't say too much about that last one. The problem this has created is that now nobody has much certainty about the future of the UK, which means that it's risky to make investments or trade deals or really do anything with the country because it hasn't displayed the consistency that it was once famous for. Now of course it should hopefully go without saying that the UK is still far more stable than a country like Somalia, but it's all relative. The UK has become highly dependent on the financial industry above all else. This has been great for the city of London where most of this business is conducted, but it hasn't done much good for the rest of the country. Unlike a financial centre such as New York, most of the money that flows into London isn't flowing into domestic companies and projects. Instead it's going into opaque financial investments made all over the world on behalf of people that choose to do business in the city because of its willingness to look the other way rather than the markets it grants access to. London is still the second largest financial centre in the world, but the type of finance being done here is in many ways doing more harm than good to the rest of the country. The British pound has been on a slow and stable decline compared to other global currencies for basically the past century but it's arguably still overvalued compared to where it should be because of its use by the financial industry in London. Domestic British industries have also been hurt by this because it's made it harder to compete with regional peers in the EU, who also have the advantage of more favourable trade deals now that the UK is no longer a member, as well as other emerging rivals around the world. What's more is that the UK, which was once the global leader in industrialization, now has ageing infrastructure, declining education and weak utilisation of technology, which is making its workers less productive, less globally competitive and therefore less well compensated. Workers in the UK in high school jobs can earn much more in places like the USA, Canada, Australia and even Asian financial hubs like Singapore, Hong Kong and Shanghai. This is causing a weird situation where the UK has a lot of people migrating to the country from undeveloped economies to find a better life with better opportunities, and equally a lot of people moving out of the country to find an even better life with even better opportunities. The net result of this in and out game is clear though. The UK brings in more people than it loses for now, but it's losing a lot of highly skilled workers and it's been losing more and more every year since 2007. If the trend continues, the UK will end up with a declining population that's missing all of its most productive workers. This overall negative outlook has in turn made the UK an even less desirable place to make investments or start a business or begin a career. Advanced high income countries, which again the UK still is on average, usually have one last defence against these problems, which is that their own wealthy citizens can make up for the lack of foreign investment and ease problems like national debt. Japan for example has the highest debt to GDP ratio in the world, but not too many economists are particularly concerned about it because most of their debt is owed at very low interest rates to their own people. 
The UK also has lots of wealthy residents that can make necessary investments into the economy, but just like foreign investors, they're choosing to invest their money into other countries that have a more predictable future. The gap between foreign direct investment outflows and inflows is at its highest level ever in the UK since the GFC. Now, while all of this might seem overly theoretical, it's having very real impacts in the UK as the country struggles with regional poverty from a growing number of people that can't afford to live in their own country. Unfortunately, if these problems persist, they're likely to only feed off each other just like in 1992 as more and more desperate attempts are made to maintain the sinking ship. Now we've made an entire video last year on the other challenges the UK economy is facing, so for regular viewers we didn't want to repeat too much here, but if you haven't seen that video you should be able to click to it on your screen now. Thanks for watching mate. Bye. If they manage their own monetary policy they probably wouldn't need to take drastic action. Estonia on the other hand has an inflation rate of 17.6%, which is a problem and would warrant some pretty drastic monetary policy action. The European Central Bank has to set interest rates to accommodate for everyone, which during periods of high inflation like right now ends up being ideal for nobody. From a macroeconomics point of view, the advantages of the EU outweigh the disadvantages for the member states. Countries that have recently become members have enjoyed increased growth rates and overall Europe has become a wealthier place because of the union. But people tend to see problems more than they see benefits, and it won't be macroeconomists deciding if member states stay in the EU or not, it will be their voting populations. So the next question becomes, what happens if the EU collapses? The only correct answer is of course that nobody knows, and it depends on what that collapse looks like. A slow and steady exodus of countries from the Union, like a slow trickle of Brexits, would hurt economic growth over the next decade, just like Brexit itself is projected to do in the UK. The estimates for the economic cost of Brexit range from around 2.5 to 8% of the UK's GDP, but it had some advantages that other countries would not. It never adopted the Euro and it kept its own currency, the pound, which is also a well recognised and at least up until recently widely respected global currency. Other countries would need to create a new currency from scratch which would make even the most basic economic functions impossible until that system was set up. Conservatively that would put economic losses at the higher end of the estimates, only scaled up to all of Europe. More realistically it would cause a severe continent wide recession that would make the Eurozone crisis look insignificant in comparison. Important questions would also need to be answered about what happens to countries with foreign reserves of euros and how would debts denoted in obsolete currency be settled. Dozens of European communities have come and gone just the past century, and while the EU has obviously been the most influential and successful, it's just bad economic planning to assume that it will go on forever. Every country in the EU should at least have a plan for what happens if their country decides to leave, or what happens if the union just falls apart. Hopefully those plans will never need to be put into action, but the job of a good economist is to know how to minimise the damage if they do. Okay, now it's time to put the European Union on the Economics Explained National Leaderboard. Again, this is a national leaderboard, so the scale is not really meant for it, but here goes anyway. Starting as always with size. The European Union has a collective GDP of 17.2 trillion, which still only makes it the third largest economy in the world, if official figures from China can be trusted. There have been some doubts raised by some very reputable economists that the Chinese economy might be significantly smaller than their figures suggest, so the EU might claim the runner-up position behind the US. The EU gets a 10 out of 10. GDP per capita is quite high. Most members of the EU are advanced service-based economies, and new members from Eastern Europe have typically enjoyed a boost to their growth rate after becoming a member state. With a GDP per capita of $38,411, it gets an 8 out of 10. Stability and confidence is interesting. The EU has benefited from the combined strength of using a widely recognised global currency and sharing economic prosperity and challenges amongst member states. 
but it's also had a lot of challenges in its short history. Despite everything though, it still gets an 8 out of 10, as most international institutions would have more confidence dealing with the EU collectively than they would dealing with most of the member states individually. Growth in the EU over the past decade has been fairly stagnant. The small economies that are growing don't contribute enough to make up for the larger economies that haven't been growing or have been going backwards. It gets a 3 out of 10. Finally, industry. This is where the EU really shines. It has been able to share